everybody. How's everybody doing today? So good. All right. Try not to be too excited. Um, it's only preaching. We're continuing in our God's Not Red sermon series. Uh, and today, we're going to talk about Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. minute. This slide looks unfamiliar. All right, stick in mode. Just roll with it. When we, hallelujah, sing to Jesus, you should know his scepter and his, his throne. They're, they're his. Okay, here we go. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, an awesome story that I felt was extremely appropriate given that Mother's Day was last week. Uh, and that's the story of God sending two bears to murder some kids. Um, and if I haven't lost you yet, then strap in. It's going to be a great ride. Um, somebody uh, who I guess will remain nameless because I don't see him here, uh, gave me this very uh, clever summary of the, of the story, poke fun at alopecia, bears going to eat ya. And I feel like that can pretty much be the entire sermon, so thank you for having me. Uh, have a day, no? Before we get into it, I think we're still early enough in this sermon series that I can still take a few moments to talk about the goals of this sermon series. You've only heard it a few times. Please bear with me. Um, as you know, it's called God's Not Read. Very clever title. You're welcome. Um, the goal here is to look at some overlooked or misunderstood Bible stories and try to understand how these stories fit in the meta-narrative of Scripture. And what I generally mean by meta-narrative of Scripture is to just show how these stories can exist and have us also believe that God is good and loves us and sacrificed himself to be with us, right? So it's understanding how you can have a story like bears killing a bunch of kids and still think that God is good and God loves. Um, it's important for me to at least say that uh, I think it's been mentioned before that like what we're hoping to do is take some of these stories that like if you think about like a, uh, an argument with an atheist, the things that they'll throw at you and give you the ammunition so that you can fire back at them. That's not really what I'm hoping to do here, right? Uh, the way that we approach scripture, and by, by we, I mean, you know, Christians, um, so if you don't consider yourself one, come join us, it's great fun. Um, the, way, the way that we generally interpret them is to always try to fit them into that meta-narrative, right? We interpret these stories with the understanding that God is good, whereas others may not. They may interpret these stories as, a, uh, as an illustration that God is not good and never desire to dig a little further. Now, it's important also to understand that that's the viewpoint that we're coming from, right? You don't want to let that be a bias, something that you read into the story, if it's not necessarily there. Uh, it's, it's here. Spoiler alert. We'll get there. Uh, we'll get to why here in a bit. Uh, but it's important to understand that you don't want to just read into it that God's good and stop digging once you think you found your answer. We, we want to uncover all of the context of these stories, Right? And then try to let that decide what it is that this thing's trying to say. So, uh, in my, um, my undergrad, when I had a biblical literature minor, which makes me really good at understanding Bible, um, the three most important rules that were hammered into me for understanding scripture are, of course, context, context, and also context. Um, 
If you can't read, it's right there. <laughs> so let's get started. Uh, this is a great story because it's only two verses long, so I don't have to do a lot of work, right? But here's the story. Elisha went up from Jericho to Bethel. On the way, young boys came out of the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! When he turned around and looked at them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore to pieces 42 of the boys. Can I get an amen? <laughs> All right. Th thank you. Thank you. Extra blessings for you. <laughs> so uh, really quickly, we can see this is the story of Elisha. Um, and the first bit of context that I want to add in there is, wait for it, scripture. All right. So we're just going to start with talking about where this story appears in the Bible. Uh, obviously, I had put up there, it's 2 Kings. I think, 23 through 24. Here's what's going on around that. In 2 Kings 2, verses 1 through 11, Elijah, uh, which hopefully I will not get those mixed up, it frequently happens, so please forgive me. You have to. You're probably Christian. Um, Elijah is taken by a chariot of fire into heaven. Um, if you, for those of you who might not be too familiar with that story, Elijah was probably the biggest prophet in the Old Testament, right? The, one of the most iconic. Um, it, at the end of his career as a prophet, uh, he retired via chariot of fire straight into heaven. And if that's not a retirement party, then I don't know what is, right? After that, now, right before Elijah, Elijah was actually taken, Elisha asked him, like, uh, I want to receive a double portion of your spiritual powers, right? I want to lead after you uh, in the way that you have led. Uh, and there's a little test sort of thing. Elijah says that if you actually see me go into heaven, then that means that God has said that's okay. And if you don't, then you didn't. Too bad. Tough luck. Try again next time. Um, and, of course, Elijah retires via his chariot, and Elisha sees it, and therefore, therefore he knows that now it's his turn. It's his turn to be the lead prophet of Yahweh and uh, take up the mantle where Elijah left it. Now, in 2 Kings 2, 12 through 22, so still the same chapter, the next bit is Elisha demonstrating that he is Elijah's error. Error, sorry, not error. That's very different. Um, his error. And the, the really interesting one about this is the way that they go about doing it is part of Elijah and Elisha walking around they're just kind of wandering around, you know, checking on stuff, seeing how people are going. And at some point, they hit the Jordan River, and Elijah uh, hits it with his staff, and it parts, and they walk through it. So after that, Elisha, now that he's the main god, is like walking back and finds the Jordan River, and he hits it with his staff, and he parts it, and they walk through it. Now, I don't know if you've caught up on all of your scriptural stories, but that's a pretty big indicator that this guy is the voice of God, right? I don't know if you remember anybody else who's done that, but it was Moses, the very first voice of God, all right? So it's clearly hearkening back to that idea, right? This is, it's, it's a very obvious sign that this is definitely God's dude. You can't get more obvious than that. But despite that, despite Elisha doing an, an exact miracle that Elijah had performed, and despite him saying, I saw Elijah go up into, into heaven in a chariot of fire, and it was pretty cool, 
there are other prophets there that doubt it and say, well, why don't we just go look around? Maybe he just got caught up in some wind and he blew to like the next mountain over. Let's just go look for him. What's the problem? What's the harm in doing that? And they finally, uh, Elisha relents and allows them to go look, right? Clearly doubting that Elisha is who he says he is. They're, They're not sure if they should believe, if they should follow this guy. But the other part that you should note here is that this is the earliest parts of Elisha's career, right? The story that we're talking about, bears eating kids, happens as his first, uh, at least scripturally, his first direct contact with people outside of Judaism. Um, afterwards, in 2 Kings 3, uh, and we don't have to spend a lot of time here, it's just uh, something that I found ish- interesting. They jump over to a couple of kings, um, Jehoram and Jehoshaphat. I'm very good at old uh, names, so that is exactly how those are pronounced. You're welcome. Um, they are trying to go to war with Mesha, uh, and they say, the king of Judah, Jehoram, says, we're going to die of dehydration. Is there no prophet of God here? And by that point, he is already somewhat recognized as the prophet, right? So this story sits smack dab in the middle of the last prophet dying and Elisha being recognized as probably the main prophet of God by the general populace at large. So again, This is his first interaction. This is his first foray into doing anything in the name of God and and being the the spokesperson of God. We'll come back to that. So uh, put a little asterisk there in your notes or whatever it is you're doing. The second bit of context that that I want to talk about, I don't care what you want to talk about, um, is a little, just a little bit about the geography, and I'm so good at putting pictures up here that you can see. So very clearly, you can see where Bethel is, and um, no, we'll point it out here. Uh, the things that I wanted to point out here is, um, for those of you who aren't caught up in your Jewish history, right, David was like the second king, right? That's, that's why it's called second kings. It's all about David. That's not true. Don't believe that. Don't write that down. Um, David's the second king. You all know him, right? His son Solomon, third king, pretty good one. After that, he has a, Sol- Solomon has a son called Rehoboam, clearly is how that's pronounced, who splits the kingdom through his ineptitude, right? Um, Israel, a bunch of the tribe, most of the tribes of the north separate off into their own kingdom, and then Judah and like one or two other tribes of the south remain loyal to the king in the south. So at that point, you've got two kingdoms split, and I think it's like 50 to 100 years after this that that Elisha is going around doing his stuff, right? So the kingdom is relatively recently split, but at this point, they've already pretty well established that it's two kingdoms. Now, part of the, the issues that came about from this is very early on, this guy, Jeroboam, um, it's he, uh, he decides that he needs to set up alternative places of worship because he can't have all of his people in the north going down to the south and worshiping God there because then they're just going to remain loyal to the people in the south, right? They're not going to rebel against the people in the south if, that, if the seat of God is there. Like, that's just kind of asking for trouble. So Jeroboam establishes Dan and Bethel, the city that we are in, as alternative places of worship, idolatrous places of worship, Uh, And Bethel, I think, is like right here. Uh, Luckily for you, I have very shaky hands, 
uh, and Dan is like right up there, right? So one in the north, one in the south. Uh, Bethel right by, that was weird. Bethel right by uh, Judah, right? So that way the people, they'd be like, oh, hey, let's go to Judah. Or we could stop in Bethel, which is right there. Yeah, let's do that. We're going to cut, cut a couple days off our journey. Sounds great. So by this time, um, Bethel has probably already realized the fruits of that labor. They've probably already started to become pretty rich because of it. As both a tourist, touristy location and a place of worship, they would have experienced uh, a decent amount of money coming in from it, uh, a decent amount of power by extension. Uh, the last little bit of context that I want to talk about are just the words that are being used. All right? Um, the first phrase that is interesting is this katan na'ar, definitely exactly how it's said. Um, katan na'ar is what is translated as little children here, and if we go back, this is so convenient. Sorry, I guess in this translation it's young boys. Many, many tr uh, translations translate at that as little children. Um, and the reason why it gets translated as a lot of different things because it can have a lot of different meanings. Katan, meaning little. Na'ar, meaning boy. But in all reality, katan, meaning little, can refer to the age of a person, but it can also refer to the status of the person, the importance, the maturity, the relative just size. Um, it, it means little, but in a very broad sense. Um, two verses here that I... Um, well... Two verses here that I th thought can really do a good job of illustrating that this doesn't necessarily mean young child. It just means somebody relatively young in the, by comparison to something else. First uh, Kings eleven seventeen, this guy named Hadad, definitely exactly how you pronounce it, is called a Katan Na'ar who led a rebellion against Solomon and then he fled to Egypt and married Pharaoh's daughter. Um, clearly not like a six to eight year old child like you would probably expect out of this story or out of the story that we've already read about getting mauled. Um, this guy's clearly not that young, so it's not necessarily correct to apply the same age group to the, the story in question. Additionally, and this is probably my most favorite one, is 1 Kings 3.7, Solomon calls himself a Katan Na'ar when he's asking God for wisdom to be king. Right before he becomes king, God says, you know, I'll give you whatever you want. And he says, I want to be wise so I can lead my people correctly. But he calls himself a Katan Na'ar. Now, I would hope that Solomon was not a very young child when he had taken over the throne, or else those stories are all the more impressive. Uh, I imagine very small child, very, very wise for their age. But no, um, probably not what happened. Probably just a relatively young by their societal standards person, and that's what he's calling himself. So the, uh, the phrase then, the phrase then that in many translations gets translated as young children is probably a lot closer to whatever it is that uh, my translation had because it's totally the right one. Um, it's probably more along the line of something like young men, all right? Um, it's not necessarily toddlers, although I guess it could be. More likely, it's like teenagers to 20-year-olds. Somebody, like people in that age range. The second word that I want to point out um, uh, is this Allah, which means God. No, it doesn't. It means to go up. Not in, in Jewish words does it mean that. 
Uh, it means to go up. Uh, this might not seem important at first glance, right? Uh, you see this word in a lot of spots in the Bible. Like, a lot of people say, hey, let's go on up to such and such a place and do a thing, right? Or these people, they went up to this place. They use the word a lot frequently. Um, for the most part, it means, it, it has some sort of ascending connotation to it. A lot of times they're saying, like, let's go up a mountain. Um, and I believe, I haven't actually been able to confirm this, but the, the gist that I got from it is, is also kind of how we might say, let's go up to Akron, right? It's up from us, let's go up there. Uh, it's a great place, you guys should check it out. Come on up, come visit me. Um, so a lot of the times it is just used in terms of movement, but frequently it also has some sort of rising connotation to it. Uh, and the reason why that's important is because this is the same word that describes how Elijah had gone up in a chariot. So the, it is likely that the reason why this is such a threatening scenario is not because he's getting called bald, that's probably just a little bit of salt in the wound, Really, what's going on here is it's likely that the, the young men that are here are telling Elisha to go rise into the sky, much like Elijah did. Not only telling them, we don't want your God here, but also, why don't you just go meet him? I mean, kind of a not-so-obvious threat on his life, and also a, a very strong disrespect of God there. Um, so you can see here that while we... While we uh, cling to this word bald head or whatever it is that's there, uh, it's probably not the point of what they're saying. That probably meant almost nothing in the context of what's going on here. Um, these, these young men that are here are uh, being aggressive towards Elisha and the message that he brings. And for good reason, right? As I said before, Bethel was a center of idolatry. They had seen great pro uh, prosperity because of, of what they had been through just recently. Why would they want to risk that for this other god who didn't necessarily bring them anything before, at least not in recent history? Um, if anything, this is the most important part of what's going on here. Now, this last bit is a little bit, in my opinion, it's kind of weak, but I want to talk about it just because there's good jokes here. Um, but in it's also kind of important to note. The, uh, the phrase, and in this translation, uh, it is torta pieces. Hey, nice, I lined that up. Go me. Sorry, if you uh, aren't catching that, I know I'm going quick. Uh, two female bears came out of the woods and tore to pieces 42 of the boys. Right? The word that's here is watabakana. Totally right, I'm so good at this. Uh, it's, it's a phrase, it's a word that's only used here. It's not used anywhere else. But the root word, baka, means um, to, it's like to break or cleave open, right? And the pl other places where this word or a word similar to this word is used is in Numbers, talking about, uh, if you remember right from your Numbers 16 history, uh, this was a part where a bunch of people had like rebelled against Moses and God baka the ground open and swallowed them all up, right? So he broke the ground open and then just killed them all, uh, which we're not going to talk about here because we're already going over time. Uh, additionally, in 2 Kings 25, I believe this would have been the Babylonians coming in. They baka the gates or the, uh, the walls of Jerusalem, broke them open. Um, the point that I think I'm trying to make here is that, uh, especially when you take into context the number of people that apparently got hurt, 42 is a lot of people. Um, 
based on my understanding of what's going on here, there's two possibilities for what's going on. One is the Bears ripped in half 42 people, which is just outrageous. From a logistical perspective, for two Bears to rip in half 40, that's 21 people each in one event. Like they have to just line up in a line and then just stand there and wait for this bear to rip them all apart. Or what's far more likely is that bears had attacked these people and 42 of them had gotten some sort of claw mark and were broken into. Their skin was broken open, right? And as we all know from The Revenant, the documentary about life in the Alaskan wild, 0% of all bear attacks are fatal. So it is clear that probably none of them died. Um, likely what happened is just 42 people got injured. And additionally, I would like to throw out on top of that, if 42 people got injured, how many people were actually there? Um, it's not mentioned, um, but I would guess that there were probably more than 42 people. They probably didn't have a 100% hit count. They probably had closer to like a 25 to 50, and there's just so many people there that in the chaos, the bears got at a bunch of people. Now, I say that's a somewhat weak point because we don't know. We don't know if 42 people died. We don't know if zero people died. There might have been some people that died there, right? And that's probably a bad thing. Um, but it's based on the other things that we've got going on here. Uh, it's definitely not two bears killing a bunch of kids. It's more likely two bears harming and possibly killing a few of a bunch of young men who are physically assaulting the voice of God. And much more important to that is that this is, again, Elisha's first foray into the outer world. Um, if, if God does not protect him in a very strong way, right, he risks losing all of his, uh, I guess we could say power, all of his influence here, right? Um, if, if Elisha comes out and somebody threatens him and then Elisha just tucks his tail between his legs and runs away, well, then the question becomes, is this really the voice of God? Is, was Elijah really the voice of God? Did he just get lucky a couple of times with some magic tricks and God doesn't exist? God might be dead. Um, this line of thought would permeate their culture had nothing happened to the people that threatened God's voice here. And that's also important. It was a tumultuous time. Um, so... The lessons I wanted to throw out here, just a couple of things, a couple of thoughts that speak to me here, um, mostly because I have no idea how to wrap this up. I don't know what you do with a story about bears killing people, except say that it didn't really happen. The first part, God's not mocked. He makes this clear sometimes, and I think really he makes it clear here. Um, you should not mock the people like God himself and also the people who speak on his behalf, like me. Do not make fun of me. Please stop it. It hurts my feelings. Don't do it. But also, God protects his people, right? Um, he can protect you, for, or just like he protected Elisha from probably 200 to 300 people. I have no idea how many it was. I'm just making a guess here. Um, just like God protected Elisha from a great mass of people, so he can also protect you in ways that you might not necessarily see at the beginning. I'm fairly certain that Elisha had no idea that bears were going to come out and protect him but man, that is a pretty cool scenario or pretty cool trick to have in your back pocket. Um, oh, I feel threatened, how about bears? Um, and last, of course, is our very eloquent summary, poke fun at alopecia, bears gonna eat ya. Do not make fun of me for getting older. I cannot handle it.
also God said don't. And that's what I have for you. Thank you. I think we're going to do communion now.